Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. I want to welcome everyone to this episode of The American Idea. Today we're joined by a, 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 an old and dear and good friend of the Ashbrook Center, Professor Gordon Lloyd. We're going to be talking with Gordon uh, about America's first constitution, the Articles of Confederation, what they were, why they were important, and maybe bust a few myths about the articles. Gordon, as many of our listeners know, uh, is has been, for, was for a very long time, and is now emeritus professor at the School of Public Policy at Pepperdine University in Malibu, California. He has been part of the Ashbrook Center and its programs for many years, working with teachers, working with citizens, and in particular, lending his profound knowledge and expertise to our AmericanFounding.org website, which is a terrific piece of scholarship and brings the America, the story of the American founding to life in a really profound way. So let me direct all of our listeners to Gordon's wonderful work on AmericanFounding.org. He is also a prolific author, uh, the author of a number of books uh, himself and co-written with uh, his regular contributor, David Davenport, also a good friend of the Ashbrook Center. Terrific books, um, so many, a book on FDR and Herbert Hoover and the New Deal, a book on a particularly important book, I think, published not that long ago on the idea of war as a metaphor for government policy and the idea adopting war on poverty, war on drugs, and the particular dangers and problems with that approach. Very thoughtful book. Let me recommend it to our listeners. Gordon Lloyd, thanks for joining us today on The American Idea. That was a bit short. You could have gone on for a bit. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well. <laughs> well, uh, let, let's, let's address your question of the status of the Articles of Confederation. Yeah, in- can I just start? Because, look, yeah. Gordon, you know it. You've experienced it. We talk to teachers all the time about it. People say the Articles of Confederation were really just nothing but an unfortunate episode in American history. Thank goodness we those were done. It was useless. They were a disaster. They were, as you said, lacking in status and vigor. And really, it's just good if we kind of forget the articles and move on. Is that common opinion correct? Well, it, it, it has some merit to it, because if you want to create a government, a union, uh, which it claims to a perpetual union, and a, and, a, and a government over 13 former colonies, then it is an inadequate um, instrument. But if you want to create 
some kind of camaraderie and, and realization that, look, we've just done something that the world has never seen before. We've declared independence and, and, and on the road to securing it against the greatest empire since the Romans. And um, no one's done that before. So <laughs> are we going to just go break apart now uh, and, and, and leave it at that? And so the, the conversation is, what kind of union are we going to have? Are we going to have a union in which um, the structure is basically governmental, like the Constitution? Or is it going to be uh, decentralized, where the real action of government occurs at the state and local level? And I mean, it's, to me, it's fascinating rereading, work, working with you and, and Chris Burkett, and Josh on on, a, on the web on the new website, when you go through day by day of the, um, of, the, of the Journal of Congress, dealing with the Continental Congress, which was which we <clears throat> I describe anyways, a lot of people don't make a distinction between the Continental Congress and the Confederation Congress, right? And one might say, well, that's getting really a bit, bit too uh, academic. Well, the Continental Congress was the, was the Congress that came together to declare independence. And at the same time it declared independence, it said it is important that we, that we set up an arrangement between the states. Remember, France is, is in Louisiana right around the corner. France is in, 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 um, in Canada. Britain is in Canada. Spain is in Florida. We have to set up some kind of, if, even for just common defense purposes, we need to set up some kind of NATO uh, <laughs> alliance so that we fend off these foreign policy issues. What's the good of having independence now and then losing it? So it's not useless. The articles aren't useless because, because this whole story goes through stages. The first, the Continental Congress declared independence at the same time is declaring independence from Britain. It is issuing orders, really more than recommendations, orders to the former colonies to create governments at the state level. And on the very same day, orders that a, that a committee be created within Congress itself, headed by John Dickinson, uh, to examine Articles of Union. And so what you get between 1776 and 1781 is a robust, strong development of local and state governments with their Bill of Rights and their executive and their judiciary and their separation of powers and checks and balances. And on the other hand, you have this non-existent Confederation Congress, which doesn't come into existence until 1781, because um, of these questions of states' rights. Now you've got states' rights coming in, and you have the, the boundary disputes. How are you going to settle boundary disputes? How are you going to settle disputes between these 13 states? Are you going to simply presume that they're going to live in, live in harmony forever? There's going to be something going to come up. It's, it's, a, it's a very cumbersome, it's a very cumbersome um, instrument for governing. But at the same time, we have to realize that it, it was not intended to create a union, a government, a structure 
in which you have separation of powers and, and what we you what we would call a government. So I think some of the criticism of the articles is that it wasn't a government. And the answer is yes, you're quite correct. It's not a government because that was one of the parts of part of the story. What government are we going to have? And then so when you, you have, move to, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it just sounds like then what you're really saying is in that that criticism, it's not a government. The the response really is, yeah, that's right. As you said, its purpose was not to create a government because governments were being created at the state level. States Correct. are adopting constitutions. States are putting their own governments into practice. And so the, the, the action of government really is at the state level, not at the national level, because that's not where governments are being built at that moment. That's correct. And, 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 and the experience at the national level has mainly been with war. So the number one issue to be confronted by the articles is going to be uh, general uh, common defense. Ah, okay. So what are the, the, the Articles of Confederation, as you said, are adopted in 1781. Yeah. Um, the, the treaty uh, uh, ending the Revolutionary War of course, as our listeners know, is 1783. Right. So there's a little bit of time where they're uh, during the Confederation, Articles of Confederation, where the United States is still technically at least at war. And then the articles last until they're replaced by the Constitution. So they really come, they're really in existence and operating throughout the 1780s, uh, at least till the end of the 1780s. What are the primary pressing issues facing the United States during the 1780s? That the Articles of Confederation government has to government <laughs> confederation has to try and deal with. Okay, well, one, what one one issue is 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 as I said, the defense issue, and that's an ongoing question from the from the very from prior to the Declaration of Independence, and that's that's what is is really joining. The, the union together in in some kind of commonality, common defense. Um, so actions are taken on behalf of this new union to defend the country. The other issue that would join the the various colonies now states together in the question is uh, the general welfare. See the word common and general are, are very very suitable to the Articles of Confederation, because the presumption is that, that as you as you pointed out, that government, the idea of making laws and enforcing laws, and going about your various business of driver's licenses, etc., you're going to be handled at the state and local level. So that is, so common defense and general welfare, and those two words that that are so important in the U.S. Constitution. Um, originate in the articles. So if you want to go about the articles not being useless, no, it actually addresses what um, what a union should be doing, uh, dealing with united efforts. And that becomes a question, what is, because you, you settle the question, what a union is supposed to be doing, general welfare and common defense, but you just opened the can of worms, what is the general welfare and common defense? Yeah, right, exactly. Right, right. Yeah. And on you go. And, and, right? And the next generation hasn't understood the, the original conversation. 
So they say, well, all we have in front of us is the words general welfare and common defense. Well, let's go at it. We're doing this in the name of general welfare and common defense. So let me ask you about some other problems. We've got the problem of common defense that affects the United States in the yeah. 1780s. You mentioned one already, which is what to do about the Western territories. Yes. The, that the United States has sort of come into possession of as a result of the treaty with England. Um, and then, of course, there are other state disputes over yes. territories that are not the Western territories. And then I, it seems to me one of the other big problems is what to do about the debt that the United States yeah, and states incorp uh, incur as a result of the Revolutionary War. Well, what about those problems of Western territory disputes and yeah. the debt? And, and, in, and, and the and internal disputes about where your border ends. The uh, Mason-Dixon line, we usually associate with the Civil War, but it's actually, uh, I think, during the colonial times, where there was a, an attempt to, 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 uh, to, to form the, the boundary between, um, I think, New Jersey and something, Maryland. But, but so, I mean, that's, that's something that you learn as you, as you go through, that, that it's, it's, it's really 3630 is the important one, not Mason-Dixon. Here's a way of com comparing the articles and, and, the, and the Constitution. In the Constitution, there was no uh, issue, say, of, 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 um, of, of, of raising money. Congress had a specific, had a specific power granted in, in the Constitution of 1787 to raise money, to borrow, to go into debt for such and such and such and such. And, um, and the issue under the Constitution was representation. Are we, how are we going to represent people, which is the real force of, of creating, the, of creating the, the Constitution to replace the Articles? How are we going to represent the, the, the people? How are we going to represent the states, which have not come into existence over so what, 10, 11 years and, and are pretty darn powerful? Uh, and, and then how are we going to represent wealth? And uh, the reason for that is, 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 is the Southern. It's the Southerners at the Constitutional Convention raised that question on, on, on June the 11th with, um, with Sherman for the states and Madison for the, for the people. So the Con Constitutional Convention became a three-way conversation concerning representation of people, wealth, and, um, and states. Okay, now when you look at the, are those three issues still, were they foreshadowed under the articles? Well, the answer was yes and no. People weren't going to be represented. That wasn't a question. That was a given. So there were only two questions to be, to, 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 to really, the representation is going to be, it's going to be states. Well, how about wealth? No, this is a states-based institution. Well, how are you going to raise your money? And a, sort of a, an unofficial compromise was raised between uh, between the delegates that uh, the, the you put a tax on on uh, on commerce, you put a tax on um, various uh, commodities, very very similar to the kind of taxes that you found to be so onerous under the British. You're going to have to. You're going to have to tax 
in order to raise some money, particularly to pay the debt. But then, and then you borrow from France. And you issue, you issue treasury notes. But the key, key point here is, is that under the articles, representation and wealth are not questions. What is a question is, I mean, in terms of represent, representing wealth, what is a question is how to raise money. But you're pointing out debt because Congress did not have the power to tax. All right. Then how did Congress actually, because even though it's not a government in the traditional sense of the word, as you said, it still has to raise money to do things, including try to deal with the problem of the massive debt that's incurred by the states and by the Continental Congress during the Revolutionary War. So how did the Articles of Confederation Congress try, in fact, to raise money, and was it successful? Dear mom and dad, please send money. <laughs> <laughs> that is the right to the states who control the purse and say, your requisition for this year, we estimate to be such and such and such, and such. very much like, like um, the League of Nations used to do it, very much like an alliance used to do it. They don't have the power to tax. They don't have the power to raise money, but they do have the power to beg. <laughs> and and they begged. And was their begging successful? Well, partially, <laughs> partially successful. So sometimes more than others. It depends upon the, the, the nature of the emergency, as to whether that was uh, what, what the case or not. But but. Um, we, we, what the delegates came to it was an informal agreement. You cannot, you, you won't find it in the articles itself. It was an informal agreement on how to raise, on, on what was a fair way of of um, taxing Virginia uh, contribution, uh, taxing New Jersey. I mean, what, what what would be a fair and reasonable way of saying your, this is your contribution to the common defense and general welfare? And they came up with um, the three-fifths clause. I said, well, now that's interesting because, of course, our listeners know the three-fifths clause as part right. of the United States Constitution, talking about representation in the House of Representatives and particularly that's the issue of slavery. That's correct. And under the Constitution, taxation is not the issue. Representation is. Under the Articles, taxation is the issue. Representation is not. So the question of wealth comes in, not in the form of representation, but in the source of money to pay debt and to run the government. And an informal, as I say, because you won't find it in the, in the, um, in, in the document itself. It's, the, the, it's, it's sort of working within the spirit of the document, what would be a fair way to raise that? I mean, Virginia is so wealthy because it has all these slaves. So how should we tax Virginia? How, what's the worth of a slave? So Gordon, how, um, if, if you think about the difficulty then of raising money, because one uh, governments have to raise money, and if you have to beg the states to raise money, and if they have to come up with this three-fifths compromise to try and figure out what the requisitions that each state owes to the Continental, to the, to the Confederation Congress is, um, obviously there's going to be disputes. People are going to yes. say, Virginia, you owe this amount. And Virginia might say, no, we don't. We owe this. Were those disputes common? Yes. Money, money owes, follow the money. 
Money has a great way of uh, not necessarily defining or settling disputes, but it's there. It's hanging around. The commercial republic money is going to be hanging around. All right. So, so if money, if money issues were very important, the other issue that you mentioned that seems not to have been very effectively resolved by the Confederation Congress was the issue of boundary disputes, especially the Western territories. Yes. Tell our listeners about the problem that the U.S. faced in the 1780s with Western territories. Well, I have always been, been fascinated, been, more and more I read all of this, I'm fascinated by the almost lust that humans have for land you know, and, and how they will fight over a rock, Gibraltar, how they will fight over a I mean, look at the the um, what the Falkland Islands. I mean, the, how moral issues come very, very important in terms of a small piece of rock which you wonder. Land, land is important. Um, I haven't done enough work on on on, on the association between sort of, sort of sense of self and and the, the idea of land. But where you draw a boundary, that's the end of your land. And um, <clears throat> the boundary disputes was that Virginia had um, had a lot of uh, uh, claims to, to to Western land. The British had claims, the French had claims, and each individual colony had claims. And 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 there were disputes between the colonies, as you point out, as to where the land ends. Because because th th that's the government that this is this is Massachusetts and I'm a Massachusetts person. Um, it doesn't oh, oh well, it's just the Rio Grande just crosses. It doesn't matter. You know, it, 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 boundary disputes don't matter. Boundary disputes matter then because of because of this, I think this association with land and where where does Virginia begin and end? And Virginia was very generous actually. Virginia wanted the Union to work. Wanted the Union to become more cohesive, but more structurally um, along the lines of what it became. Um, in fact, Madison wasn't happy with the, wasn't completely happy with the outcome of the Constitutional Convention. And he thought that was the minimum. What we got out of it for, for Madison um, was the minimum, the minimum conditions uh, for meeting, meeting federal requirements. That was, that was the minimum conditions. Uh, also very, very fascinating, all through this period, although the dominant uh, pull was my colony, my states, you did see these, um, you did see what you might call federal kind, federalizing men, as they were called. And these federalizers were human, were, were, were politicians who wanted to make a stronger federation. And that meant reducing the power of the states. And we get that, that gets us into this huge question of what does federalism mean? Does it mean state power or does it mean national power? And should the anti-federalists have been called the federalists and should the federalists should have been called the, the nationalists and all of that stuff? Well, that, you know. Before we continue with our conversation, I'd like to have one of our faculty members tell you about a special documents-based graduate program for teachers of American history, government, and civics. 
Hi, this is John Moser, Chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government Program at Ashland University. If you are an educator who teaches U.S. history, government, or politics, our program may be just what you've been looking for. Our approach is to emphasize primary sources, since we think the best way to study the past is to read the words of those who lived it. We have a distinguished faculty made up of professors from both Ashland University and from colleges and universities across the country. And they're not there to lecture to you. We think it's better to learn through conversation about the documents. Ours is a hybrid program with two different types of seminar. The first are our week-long intensive in-person courses during the summers on the beautiful campus of Ashland University. The second are our live synchronous online seminars offered throughout the year. So if you're a social studies teacher and you're looking to deepen your understanding of America's past and its politics, please check out the Master of Arts in American History and Government program. You can do that by visiting tah.org slash programs. Well, let me ask you, so let me ask you about that point, Gordon. You mentioned James Madison as being one of the people who were federalizers in the 1780s, yeah. right? Who looked at the Articles of Confederation and said, they might have been a good step forward from where we were, which was no national government of any kind, right. to, to some kind of structure. But Madison, as you know, comes through the 1780s, gets increasingly alarmed by what he sees as the failures and wants That's to federalize, right. wants to nationalize power in many ways and set up a proper government for the Union. Um, he's obviously one of the minds that traditionally called the father of the Constitution. We think of him as one of the great minds behind the U.S. Constitution. Let me ask you this question about the Articles of Confederation. Who were the minds yeah. behind the Articles? You see, that's a very interesting question because it's tough to put your finger on it because of the reputation that the Articles have, have received. Plus, they passed away. And we don't, um, I don't know, we do the Declaration of Independence and toot toot, good, good. And fortunately, we do something about the con Constitution and that. But we don't do anything about this middle period, the, the article, because it came into being and they went away. So it's very difficult to, to bestow some kind of permanency on something that, 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 that wasn't permanent. So as, our, as a scholar of the, this period and of the articles, is there any particular person or individuals that you would say are probably most associated with creating the articles or yeah, John Dickinson. John Dickinson. Tell us a little bit about John Dickinson's role. Who is John Dickinson? Some of our listeners might not know. And tell us a little bit about his role in the articles. Well, John Dickinson um, was a member of the Continental Congress. Yeah, I make a distinction between the Continental Congress and the Confederation Congress. Purpose for a specific purpose. Continental Congress existed from 1774 with the first Continental Congress through 1775, 1776 with the second Continental Congress, which declared independence. And it continued to be the second Continental Congress until 1781 when the Confederation was adopted. And then you get into the Confederation Congress. And that lasts until that it gets it, it gets demolished by 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 the Con Con constitutional convention john dickinson was a member of, uh, representing uh pennsylvania uh later on he represented um uh, delaware 
he was uh, very active in, uh, in, 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 in American politics, considered uh, not to be a hothead, considered to be a, a, a moderate, um, and let, let's look for uh, the, the least uh, uh, the, 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 the least antagonistic way of expressing what we want to do. And so he was um, a, a member of the of the uh, the the the, uh, the, con the the Congress which declared independence. But he didn't sign. He didn't sign because he thought. Um, he thought that Jefferson's draft that came to the that came to the finally that he thought Jefferson's draft was was over was overwhelmingly um, bitter, nasty, and and uh, confrontational with the king. I mean, isn't it enough to say that we declare ourselves to be independent? You really need to go on and and um, sort of pour it on King George. We may have to deal with King George. No, Britain is not going to go away just because we've declared independence. So John Dickinson is the kind of person who was ideal to, to, to head a committee to write a, uh, Articles of Confederation, which are, which are supposed to be um, friendly, have a friendly way of settling disputes, which they did a very cumbersome way, by the way. Each state would have a representative and they would have a committee. And in fact, a lot of the Articles of Confederation is made up of describing this committee who's going to settle disputes. No, 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 no idea of an independent judiciary to whom you send disputes of such and such. No, 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 no select committee of, a, of, a, of, a, of congressional members who will, will um, do, do the final draft. No, it was a committee of the whole. But this committee would be where everybody's involved. In, and this is this is Dickinson's point. You know, it's 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 it's, it's sort of where everybody's involved, where, where everything touches, where, where, where something touches everybody, everybody should be involved. And we should approach we, and we should approach each other as um I mean, that's my 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 rendition of dickinson right. so, so, so john dickinson no. as you say is this moderate this yes. conciliator and yes. therefore not the best for at least in the initial push for independence as you said yes. but very good for trying to create a governmental structure based on conciliation and yes. a kind of moderation yeah, exactly uh, who he he is he the one who actually writes yes the text of the articles of confederation yes yeah, and when we when we write, we think about the Articles of Confederation. It's usually John Dickinson. If you if you, and then you, uh, and then you get your opponents, who range from uh, John Adams on the one hand to James Madison on the other, uh, to uh, the Pinckneys, who are more who are more prepared to go and uh, of a more intimate. Um, constitution. I mean, if you take a look at right at what you should point out, right at the end of the Confederation Congress, which we're talking about like 1787, 1789, the, the frustration level with people like Madison was so high that they called uh, they, they called the what it was the Annapolis Convention. 
the Annapolis Convention, where certain delegates met, not everybody, they, they filtered in, and um, Madison in particular took the lead and said, we have got to hold a grand convention in Philadelphia, May next, uh, to consider the uh, how to improve or how to alter and make the make the articles work for the exigencies of the union. Well, that requires us to understand what is it that we want out of union, and 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 that has. And I think that to, to, to dismiss the Articles of Confederation as some kind of uh, joke or an unfortunate period uh, is, 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 to miss, is to miss something extremely important in the foundation of America. How do you reconcile representation of the people with representation of the states and the question of where wealth is, of where wealth is to be represented. And wealth has been represented practically in every government since the beginning of time. Because without the wealthy, you have no money. And that's it. And, and, and that's it. So that's, that's what your good old Aristotle would come up with the notion of why don't you have a balance between those who are wealthy and those who are many. And so you have, uh, you, you have this reconciliation. So yeah, I think you have to figure out what is it that we want to reconcile with, and what is it that the articles so the articles wanted to reconcile the issue of where do we stand with each other now that uh -huh. the war is over. Okay, that's a great point. That's a very interesting point because it, it makes me, then I see, I'm beginning to see the importance of the articles in beginning to answer that question. And even to try to answer that question is to begin to knit the Americans a little bit closer together to get them starting to talk about these things. Um, and as you said, it's wrong to think about the articles as therefore simply useless. We know a lot about, and people like Madison and since Madison, many people have talked about the worst moments of the Articles of Confederation, its failures. For our listeners, give us one or two of the best moments of the Articles of Confederation. Well, one is the war ended two years later. That's uh, uh, a, a way of pointing to the article's uh, um, uh, success. I mean, how, do, how do you negotiate from weakness? If you, uh, <laughs> you need to negotiate from strength, if you're going to end a war, and you're splintered all over the darn place, and the British has an empire, and, and uh, <laughs> that seems to me a rather poor, rather poor Vegas position. Uh, so in one one sense, practical sense, the war ended two years later. So that's what about that's anything? So so uh, that, that and that's incredibly important, obviously. And sometimes we forget it. We just think the war ended, as opposed to what caused the ending of the war. What's another good moment for the Articles of Confederation? Almost towards its end, the Northwest Ordinance. To go back to the point where you say about the lands and the Western lands. What are you going to do with this? When the presumption was it's not going to belong to the British anymore, we don't want to belong it to we don't want it to belong to the French. It's ours, and for it to become ours, Virginia has to give up some of that, which was very generous, by the way. And uh, Maryland was the one who was a stickler, and and so where where do these boundaries end? You think well, why boundaries? Why why boundaries matter? We're the United States of America. We the people. 
people. You know, what are you talking about? It's so silly. But no, no, they, um, so I think that that's important. So the Northwest Ordinance was 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 written in 1787, but there were many versions, and a lot of the versions involved uh, what do we do about slavery. And um, the, the 1787 version uh, occurred, um, <clears throat> and and it's, it's fascinating to read because it. Because the, the the final the final paragraph is 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 is, is sort of a, a real beacon for for people who are interested in in, in following Lincoln on, on 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 the slavery question in the founding. It says that slavery shall not exist in these territories. So there's a so there's an end to slavery. There's an agreement. There's a federal agreement, a union of the states agreeing that that henceforth. In these new lands, this new America, this America that that is, that is coming down to you, it's in 1787. At the same time that that, that, that we have the Constitutional Convention to 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 create a constitution which is supposed to be better than the Articles, the Articles manages to to bestow a, a roadmap for how the um, how this new territory. Which 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 held up the passage of the articles is going to be governed, and I think that's extremely important. Uh, you know, historians sometimes look for conspiracies all over the darn place. And I think it's I think it's more important before you go to the conspiracy level to see to see whether you can work out the arguments and, and work up for reasonable people. And um, many historians have, have talked about. How how uh, more than coincidental it was that the Northwest Ordinance passed in July 1787, when the Congress was in um, sort of dispute over what to do about this, that, and the other. And uh, isn't it good that this person came in, um, Micaiah came in, and he had land in the in the Northwest Territories, and he traded it for this and that and such and such, and so the Northwest Territory. Uh, this 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 land speculation is really the Northwest Ordinance already is a land speculation deal, so so it's going to low low deal conspiracy. So if you want to understand the the, the the Constitutional Convention and the compromises that were made, you go to uh, the Indian Tavern, and what were they talking about? They were really talking about the Northwest Ordinance, which was the glue. But I I, I think what's important to see. Is that the Northwest Ordinance didn't deal directly with the Three Fifths Clause, nor did it deal with slave trade laws. What it did was, was um, uh, the 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 uh, what I'm, I'm at a loss for words at the moment. It's it's, it's when slavery escapes and you have to yeah, the fugitive slave. Yeah, fugitive slave. That's that's the introduction of fugitive slave. So I have to ask myself, so why is it, why in 1787 for um, the Northwest Territories, the other two absent, the Fugitive Slave Clause is introduced. And it is, and it is the, it's what gets slavery excluded from the territories. So what it seems to me is that if, if I could 
summarize what I, my, my sort of time with this material is that a new America is going to be born in 1787. Well, that's an incredibly important thing because I, it really goes to my last question because I, I, my, I'm thinking about, you've mentioned already, but the sort of, we know from, even from the Federalist Papers, what people like Madison and Hamilton thought were some of the primary defects of the articles as a government, right? So for example, Hamilton says the radical vice of the of the articles, he says this, I think in Federalist 15, the radical vice is the, the lawmaking power did not operate on individuals, it operated on states. And to have a real government, the law has to operate on individuals and you need, a, you need an executive to enforce it, which the articles didn't really have. You need a judiciary to, dis, to, re, to solve disputes over those laws, which again, as you said, the articles government did not have. Uh, and the other thing that Hamilton talks about is that it did not have the power to regulate interstate commerce, which That's was correct. an important, important new power that the federal government got. And obviously over the years has taken on enormous importance in the federal government's regulation of individuals across the country. Those are the problems, two of the key problems as far as governmental structure goes, for people like Madison and Hamilton of the articles. But I was going to ask you the opposite question, which is what are two or three of the positive influences that the Articles of Confederation had on the US Constitution? And it sounds like one of those is this Northwest Ordinance establishes the principle of that slavery is a problem and slavery can be banned from the Western territories because it's not consistent with American principles. Are there other great. ways in which, are there other ways in which, a couple of ways in which the articles were a positive influence on the US Constitution? Well, I think that, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, particularly if we see what the, what the articles produced, and not by the, simply the language of say, article one, section one, but but that the, the 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 sense of the whole uh, um, body operating under the articles, what they managed to produce, Northwest Ordinance, as it's con so it's really kind of the, the conclusion, in a sense. For um, there, there's a, there's a happy ending and a sad ending for the articles. The happy ending for me would be the the, the, the Northwest Ordinance, and and we usually look at the final paragraph, which deals with slavery. But the opening paragraph, which we very rarely look at, is incredible because it, it makes it complete. It makes it, it says, it virtually says, this is a new world in which primogenitor and serfdom is going to be over. So it begins with the end of serfdom and it ends with the end of serfdom. And so this is a new plan for a new country. So what are we going to do, however, with the old country in which even though we've declared our independence, which is novel, we've declared all sorts of things which are novel, which haven't been discovered centuries ago. And we now know that about natural law, and we now know about for the, for correctly. We now know about checks and balances correctly for the first time. Uh, uh, <laughs> What, what, what is it about about making this distinction between, between the old world and the new world? You know, I have 
I, I've often thought about because of because of all the, like all of us have so sort of studied with Strauss and and, and Straussians, etc. About the battle between the ancients and the moderns, which is the decisive battle. And I have I've often thought that with it, when when you put the American experience into that, it it alters it, it it for me it alters the way in which to look at it. Old world, new world is very European. I'm sorry, sorry. Ancient modern is very European. The actors are European. When you look at America, you look at old world, new world, and you're leaving the you're leaving the ancient modern uh, controversy behind, and you're talking about to what extent are we old, and to what extent are we new, and how do we and how do we feather that, and the fugitive slave clause. Is what you might what I, what I would look at as um, uh, even today, if you're going to put in California, you're going to put in electrical vehicles. Only electrical vehicles are going to be sold um, henceforth, but not right immediately. It's starting in 2015, so there's a grace period, a grandfather clause. And so, so America deals with this issue of ancient, modern, old, new, with the fact that we're we are new, we are bold, but we're still, uh, but we still have some 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 history to us. We've been around since 1620. We've been around since. So, what do we do about these old folks? We put in a grandfather clause. So yeah, that's that's a really interesting way to look at. The articles, not just as you say, the particular words and the, and the structure they give to the Constitution, but the the spirit and the principles and the animating ideas to the U.S. Constitution. This has been a fascinating way to look anew at the Articles of Confederation. Uh, what an interesting what interesting observations, Gordon. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with well, us today, and I commend I, I, to our listeners I, I, your work on the American founding. I love, I love, I love our conversations, and I wish we had more of them. Well, so, let's do it again. We definitely will. Okay. Thank you, Thank Thank you, you all you for joining much. us today on the American Idea. Thank you for listening to this episode of the American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast. Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.